Welcome to the Beginner Audiophile Show, where we bridge the gap between the clueless big box stores and the snobby stereo shops. Every show is filled with gear reviews, commentary, and interviews aimed to find out what makes a real-world difference in your listening experience, how to get the most bang for your buck, and frankly, how to begin experiencing your music in the way it was intended. And now, your co-hosts, Harris Fogel and Michael O'Neill. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Beginner Audiophile. It is I, Michael O'Neill, here in sunny San Diego. In a moment, I'm going to be joined uh, by Mr. Harris Fogel. And on today's show, we're going to talk about setting up a turntable, something I've never done in my life. Um, We're going to talk about some questions. You guys have some questions. Harris has a great uh, music Recommendation. We're going to talk about our picks of the week, and then we're going to kick you guys loose. So, without further ado, my buddy, Mr. Harris Fogel. How are you, Mr. Harris Fogel? What's going on, bud? Oh, I'm not sure. I, um, I think I'm like a lot of other parents in the country. I've taken two boys off to college for their first first year and final year, so dorm move-in time. And, um, wow. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I asked one of my sons about what kind of audio equipment he wanted, and he has this old kind of not very good RCA tablet-driven system, and he said, eh, I don't care. Now, he's he's a music minor, and the other son um, wanted to use a wonderful piece of gear, the audio engine. Um, I think it's called the B2, which is this beautiful small speaker system with Aptex and Bluetooth, and it's just small, elegant and has beautiful sound. So that's all he needs for his dorm room. Huh. I was going to ask you if they're going to go off to, to uh, college with, with some gear, you know? Yeah, well, I think the gear that my older son Thomas brought was a stack of bass amps and guitars. So mm. <laughs> a different kind of musical instrument. I wonder what that transition is like. It's like they've been around good audio for most of their lives, right? You've always had some decent gear around the house. Do you think it's genetic? Do you think that it uh, it, it carries through? Because <laughs> it seems like it would. I, I don't think so. Really? Um, and, and, you know, the interesting thing is a, a year ago, I took um, Thomas to Capitol Records, and the, um, the producer's wing had this wonderful high-res event at Capitol Records Studios in Los Angeles, you know, the beautiful building that looks like a stack of records. Yeah. And we were in the actual studio where Frank Sinatra recorded, and um, and the presentation was all about high-res audio. And they showed a whole presentation, which you can get from their website, on millennials and the kind of people who are going to buy higher-quality audio. And he just didn't agree with it at all. His view as a college student was his friends really didn't care about high-end audio. They like Tidal, but the reason they subscribed to Tidal wasn't really for the audio. It was to get rid of the ads, um, and same with Spotify. So from his point of view, even among his friends that were musicians, audio quality wasn't really a big deal. Mm. And that completely contradicts all of their data. So I don't know, and I, I don't know. I think, that, I think that they just enjoy music, and the quality of the reproduction it's that old, it's good enough, it's fine. So I think there's a difference. And, um, and I think the popularity of things like Beats headphones, it's about branding and lifestyle more than sound quality. So, you know, but I, I do think that Tidal, by offering high quality streaming, that people can tell the difference. And I have heard students talk about that, yeah, they like it, they can hear it, sounds cleaner, sounds better. Well, I have, you know, it's one of those things for me that I've had so many people that are like, oh, I don't really care. I can't tell the difference. And then I have them over at my house and I play some music for them. And they go, oh, my God, I had no idea. Like, I, I didn't even know there was a tambourine in this song or I've been listening to this for 10 years. And, and I've had this really great renaissance with my friends where, you know, we'll come to my house. We'll break out a nice bottle of whiskey or something and we'll listen to a whole album. It'll be, you know, midnight when we start, <laughs> three in the morning when we're done listening to music. I, and and it's so fun because it's just this great. Um, it's I don't know. It feels like it's exactly how you used to spend time in the late '70s or early '80s. You know, to me anyway. 
You know, a few years ago, I interviewed Bob Weir of the Grateful Dead, and we were talking about technology and where technology and music is going. And part of the discussion was his problems with the way people were sharing music. And I said, well, Bob, you were, you know, in favor of everybody taping all the Grateful Dead shows. In fact, the dead were famous for people, legions of people showing up with tape gear and microphones and, you know, even their own little mixing board sometimes. Yeah, and, and and I guess you just got used to not great sound quality because it was just a stereo feed that was out in the crowd, right? Yeah, but sometimes it was incredibly well done. You know, it's a concert and you could use good mics and good gear. But his view was that uploading a file to the Internet, like uploading someone's hard-earned work that represents thousands of hours and tens of thousands of dollars, that's not communal. And in his mind, it was fine to tape it and everybody would gather around in someone's home or apartment or somewhere, and they'd all kind of groove on the same tunes, and it was a communal experience. So for him, that was fine. The problem is, with the internet, he just felt people were just up some, you know, some kid just uploads an album, and that's it. And it, instead of being a communal experience, all it does is take away the sustenance that allows a musician to live. And also, it's anti-communal. It's anti a community experience. So I think, you know, and I think that translates also, Michael, to the popularity of Bluetooth speakers in people's homes, in their dorm rooms, at the pool. You know, we're back to having a stereo system in the background and one that's easily controllable. And nowadays, you know, some of these sound fantastic. If you think yeah. about the B&W Zeppelin series or the uh, Sonica from Oppo or... You know, there's a whole multitude of killer-sounding Bluetooth speakers. Right. I think Paradigm has a, a set as well that sound really good. Uh, yeah. Sonos, obviously. Um, there's an interesting revolution. You know, I had a buddy that just redid his house. And I said, uh, you know, this guy's not really into audio. But he had just he was just about to do his ceiling. And I said, hey, dude, make sure you wire the thing up for... For speakers, and he goes, "Well, I don't really care that much." I said, "Trust me, if you if you have them in there, it's so easy now to wire up, you know, uh, home wide systems that you can just control it from your phone." He's, I'm like, "So think about being at a party and you have music throughout your house." He's like, oh, "That is a good idea. It doesn't take any more time, and it really is not that much more money." I mean, you got to buy the gear, of course, but from a infrastructure standpoint, if you're going to be doing a room and doing a new ceiling, a new drywall or painting or whatever, you might as well wire it up. I feel like that for, I think, I think we're getting to this weird little renaissance where people are enjoying having music in the house again. I don't know. I, I you know, I'm telling you at least locally and here in San Diego, there's a lot of shops that are opening up that are carrying vinyl and it's, it's becoming a thing again where people are sitting down and listening to music. So are you where uh, you're outside of Philly or Jersey, right? Yeah, I'm outside of Philly. We're yeah. not too far from it. And there are a lot of vinyl shops. And my yeah. son, my son goes to college in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and they have some killer audio shops there that I mean, killer vinyl shops. That's almost all they sell. So there's a lot of interest in vinyl. You know, I was thinking about what you said about wiring your house. And this is something that came up last year when we were together. Dolby Atmos, right? Mm -hmm. And I wonder how many yeah. people have a Dolby Atmos system. Well, I'm one of them. When I moved, when we moved into this house, the, our listening room is the garage is below it, and the garage was just a mess. I mean, there was torn drywall, there was disgusting insulation. So we ripped it all out, and then while I was had it ripped out, I could run wires through the joists so that I could have a pair of surround speakers in this listening room. Yeah, great. Sealed it all up, right? Well, if I want to have Atmos, I got to add two more wires to the back channels, you know, two more cables. Right. Well, I can't do that. I mean, I'd have to rip up the entire basement or the entire garage to get to those cables. So essentially it's undoable. And I think that the presumption that people can just add, you know, speakers everywhere as a new technology arises is really kind of ridiculous. And unless you're somebody with really deep pockets or a mania for home theater, you know, you're not going to sit there and start adding speakers above your head without a serious chunk of change, you know, unless, <laughs> right. unless you have a drop. I don't know. But well, I, you know I do I think though? that matters. I, I, 
I had that same struggle, and I, I think that there's going to be stuff that comes out in the next couple of years that will solve that. But what I did is I, I uh, was in my friend's storage area, and they had a bunch of those. Remember those Bose cubes that came with, like, the lifestyle system? Yeah. It was like the – yeah. So I grabbed four of those cubes, and I used those for my Atmos. And, dude, I got to say – it's not perfect. They're not perfectly placed. Like I have basically front and side at the top, but they're it. It's killer. Like it's a game changer. It's a little bit from a um, a uh, like positioning standpoint. They're not ideal, so I don't get the exact sweep you want when something flies overhead. But it's not too shabby, especially even just having the two on the the front at the top made a huge difference for me. You know. Yeah, and and of course the question is is how big is I'm a, okay. Let's back up a little bit. I'm a huge surround music fan. I love hearing audio mixed in surround. One of the nicest days of my life was sitting in Mark Dr. Mark Waldrip's studio, who you met at the LA Audio Show, and yeah. he runs AIX Recordings or Records, and it's a super high fidelity label. Ooh, cool. And um, I mean totally fanatical recordings and um and you can download by the way music from aix in in different formats in other words he has different mixes available so you can hear music from the 10th row of a concert or the back row or from a musician on stage so he gives you these options to tailor cool. the way you like, to like vr it. oh it's it's totally fantastic but we're kind of in a minority you know dvd audio died a slow death even though it was very cool and now you've got pure audio, which is big in Europe, but you know you can't really find it anywhere in America. Um, although I do recommend for our listeners, if you don't own it, buy it. The Queen, the great Queen title, you know, with Bohemian Rhapsody, yeah. is available as a pure audio disc on Amazon. It's about twenty bucks, and it sounds better than the DVD audio, and it will blow you away. So get them while they still okay. make them, because they're not going to yeah. make them very long. But yeah, so I'm a huge surround fan, and you're a drummer, and um, one of yeah. the first surround mixes I ever heard that knocked me out was Mickey Hart's mix of American Beauty, The Grateful Dead. Oh, you told me about that, or maybe yeah. we talked about it on the show a couple episodes ago. Yeah, so. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a DVD audio, and he mixed it from the point of view of the drummer, so you can hear things right. back of you, right? Oh, I gotta hear that. It's incredible, but, you know, but... Nobody really bought DVD audios. Yeah, I'm, and I'm one of them. I mean, I have a setup that I could do that on. I think the only one I've ever heard, there was a Dave Matthews live at Central Park or something like that that, that I heard um, that was DVD audio. But, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I don't as much. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's always interesting. Um, the Vinyl Revolution is something to me that is... You know, I missed it the first time. So I wasn't around, you know, in my world, I had cassettes. You know, I, I caught the tail end of eight tracks. Then I had cassettes. And then as soon as CDs came along, that was that. Um, and then, of course, in the 2000s, we got pretty much all MP3s. So I never really got the record thing. Um, did you have a pretty extensive record collection growing up? Or do you still? Oh, yeah, I still do. And you I still, still have it. And they're still wrapped in beautiful sleeves. And, you know, and, you know, this was, I remember in college, what was the old pickup line? You know, that, hey, come over to my apartment. Let me show you my collection of etchings. And, you know, and the, the joke was you'd say, hey, come over to my, my dorm room. Let me show you my collection of albums. And the reality right. was I had a really big collection of albums. But, but I did something, I, I think you very few people. mean it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but very few people did something that I did, which is, I really wanted to be in the music industry. And so starting in high school, I actually was part of a group of people who spurred the re-release of the Rocky Horror Picture Show on vinyl because the soundtrack album and the original soundtrack on Ode Records had gone out of production. You couldn't buy them. And this was the height of the midnight showings. And, mm. and I had a girlfriend in high school who loved going to those midnight showings and said, well, can you get the album? And I found out you couldn't get the album. So I contacted the company, who then contacted Gem Records, a kind of import distributor, 
and along with some other companies, I got funding and we re-released wow. the soundtrack. Right. So really? I, yeah. So when I was in my dorm room at Humboldt State, my father, who had a warehouse, was arranging to ship these albums to all the theaters. So that was my part of it. Is my I I had the rights to sell albums to the theaters showing the midnight showings. And That's um, so, cool. so yeah, you know, I got a, I bought a moped and a few things out of it, but it. It was a real entree into the record. Yeah, so I had a lot there's of albums. A, there's a timed statement, a timestamp statement. Um, <laughs> so here's the, here's a question I have, um, and I want to talk about. I'm going to talk about setting up this uh, Project Essential Three turntable that I got the other day. It's my first uh, turntable setup. But when I was at, I was like, oh, I want to get some some albums. Um, I don't. I realized I don't know what to look for at all. Like if I'm at the the Salvation Army and I'm in their whole album section, I don't know which ones are good or if there's, you know what I mean? Like I feel like is there a, is there a list that you know of a that's good audiophile albums to own other than just albums that you know of bands you like? You know what I mean? I kind of wanted something to to be able to test a, the system out with, and I'm sure all the you know pretty much all the good ones, all the Pink Floyd and that kind of stuff weren't there. But are there some staples that you know of or some? I don't know, some things to look for when you're looking in those used record bins for a good album to, to get to listen to? Well, let's think. When I was in junior high school and starting to learn about audio, and, you know, building my own crossovers and building my own amps and stuff, I used to go to an audio store in uh, Anaheim, California called Henry Radio. And that was the first time I really heard good gear. And they had these kind of legendarily cranky speakers called the Ohm Acoustics, and they were designed by this legendary, you know, amazing, eccentric designer named Lincoln Walsh. And so I'm thinking back to what they used for demonstration, and one of the most popular was a half-speed mastering of I've Got the Music in Me. And um, and that was legendary. Who was that by? I think it was by Coco Taylor, if I remember right. And okay. it was a direct to disc. In other words, they went directly from the microphone to the cutting lathe. And those are very collectible today, but the audio was great. The other album that people listened to was a Telarc recording. You can now get it digitally, um, which actually shows you it's not very good, as a side mm. note. And it was the 1812 Orchestra. And, um, and it had these amazing canon shots. Oh, and Overture. Yeah. Is that what you meant to say? Yeah, it was the 1812 or, or, yeah. or Overture. I'm sorry. And, yeah. um, and they had these, at the very end of it, they had these real cannons going off. And you can look at the album, you can pick it up in your hand, and you could see the grooves just go crazy toward the end of the, you know, the album, of the vi of the cut. Oh, wow. I mean, you could literally physically see, like, these eighth-inch or sixteenth-inch grooves. That's how crazy it is. And, in fact, it came with a warning label for your speakers. But you were talking about setting up your stereo. That was one of the most difficult ways to test if your system mm. was working. First of all, the, the the sonics on those on that chunk when those cannons go off, you know, I knew people used to blow fuses, who would shut down right. amps, you know, break a window or two, loosen some cavities. <laughs> but uh, but the it if your turntable wasn't set up perfectly, I mean absolutely perfectly, you could you would actually see the cartridge jump off the album. Wow. So, you know, so when we st talk about setting up a turntable, for me, that was, you know, like I would take that album out and I'd play it and I'd listen to the cannons. And if it survived, I thought, well, I did something right. So, um, I, and I think any older audiophiles will know that experience. And that album yeah. is now available, by the way, from HD Tracks and, you know, remastered high bit form. And to be honest with you, now when I listen to it, except for the cannons, I don't think it's a very good performance, mm. and I actually don't think it's a very good recording. So when you hear the strings, they just sound like a mass of strings, as opposed to a recording where you can really clearly define individual instruments, even as an orchestra. So it's mm. interesting. What blew me away on vinyl doesn't blow me away at all in the high-res world. Well, and I, that that's the rub, right? So even when I've had this thing set up for about a week, and I'm going to talk about a little bit about how I set it up and, and that kind of thing. But I've had it set up for about a week. And 
it is unequivocally warmer. Like you just feel, it feels more musical right out of the gates. Than, and I've been a digital guy the whole time. So I didn't know, and I'd lossless digital the whole time. And we're talking about, in some cases, people, some people in this world spend $100,000 on a DAC to try to get close to what a $200 record player can do. You know what I mean? Which is so baffling to me. Um, I, that, that may have been an ignorant statement, maybe not a $200 record player, but, but, but um, the warmth, you know. So what I did is I went back and forth between title, not a ton, like, so I need to actually do more of this and really, um, I've been trying to break in the amplifier because it was brand new and the guy said to run it for a while before I really tested with it. So that's what I've been doing, but neither here nor there. Um, you, the convenience factor is something that you really have to factor in. It's, you know, every four or five songs, you got to get up from what you're doing and flip the album over and start it over again, you know, and, and, and that's, it, it sounds simplistic, but we are so used to not doing anything like that or to being able to do it from our phone that it's a, it's like, you really have to get used to it. And to me, it felt like, you know, it was part of the romance of it is, is digging through the album and finding the right album and, you know, doing that move where you, you tilt it 45 degrees and it's sticking out. So you know which one you're playing um, you know, the, the, the cover and putting it on and really just sitting and enjoying. So, um, can I, can I share a bit about what the setup was like just in case you guys want to, yeah. So I didn't, again, very first record player in my life. And by the way, is there a difference between a record player and a turntable? Well, is there a difference between a piano player and a pianist or a flutist and a flautist? Yeah. So no, not really is what you're asking. You're saying, I don't think so. I think, um, the the one test audiophiles used to use is somebody says, "Hey, you know, I have a, I need to get a new needle for my turntable or my record right. player." The audiophile would say, "You mean a new stylus or a new cartridge?" Oh, I see. <laughs> so, is it a malcollusion or a punch in the mouth? I don't know. Right. Okay. Well, so listen to this. For someone who's never done it before, listen to this paragraph, and then I'll try to decode it. The counterweight supplied is suitable for cartridges weighing between 3.5 and 5.5 grams. An alternative counterweight for cartridging cartridges weighing between 6 and 9 grams is available as an accessory part. Pushing carefully, turn the counterweight onto the rear end of the tone arm tube so the downforce scale shows towards the front of the player. Lower the arm lift and position the cartridge in the space between the rest the armrest and the platter. Carefully rotate the counterweight until the arm tube balances out. The arm should return to a balanced position if it's moved up or down. The adjustment must be done carefully. Do not forget to remove the cartridge protection cap if fitted. Once the arm is correctly balanced, return it to rest, hold the counterweight without moving it, and gently revolve the downhorse scale ring until the zero is in line with an anti the anti-skating stub. Check whether the arm still balances out. Rotate the counter the counterweight counterclockwise to adjust the downforce according to the cartridge manufacturer's recommendations. And then, then there's a the anti-skating force adjustment as well. So there's like these things that I'd never heard of before. And that all sounded completely foreign to me. I read it. I kind of tried to do it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to YouTube. So I went to YouTube and I found someone smarter than me that had adjusted these. And I followed the video. It was like a one minute video. And it was really easy. The bottom line is the, the arm that actually settles down onto the album needs to be initially... You balance it like the the like a uh, uh, like a not a balance beam uh, teeter totter. It's got to be sort of like zero gravity, um, almost like it's in it's in space as you touch it, and then you rotate this weight that's on the back of the thing to a number that they recommend. In this case, it's seventeen point five mn, and you and I didn't know what mn meant, but we said Minnesota. So seventeen point five Minnesotas um, is what this particular tone arm, and then it's right. And I'll tell you, I had it, I, I figured I could just assemble it and go initially. That was not the case at all. It was staticky and awful. When I did this adjustment, it made it sound great. It was like magical. So I did it and I adjusted my first um, tone arm, I guess is what you'd say, in cartridge and all that stuff. Hey, I felt pretty fantastic. good about myself. I think it's great. And I think YouTube yeah. was the perfect solution. I think. Yeah. Part of it is understanding the physics. So the physics are that the stylus or the, the needle, needle. Uh, but the stylus has to rest in the groove. Now, if there's too much downward pressure, it will distort and it will also 
cause premature wear of your album, actually mm. lopping off bits of vinyl and sooner or later destroying it. And it will also cause premature wear on your stylus. If it's too light, it doesn't make it to the bottom of the groove properly. And so therefore it doesn't experience the full, you know, the full, um, the full experience of how that groove is cut in the lathe. So yeah, the first step is to balance the whole system, just like a teeter-totter or just like when you go to the doctor and you get on a scale with a sliding weight, you balance it and then you adjust it till it's right. The, the next step, of course, is anti-skating. And anti-skating is actually a pretty complicated issue because what happens is as the turntable rotates, it pulls the cartridge toward the center. But the closer it gets to the center, the more lopsided the friction is. So it's very difficult to keep the stylus in the center of the groove when it's being pulled by the groove inward. So it tends to favor one channel over the other one. So anti-skate is simply a counterbalance to that force. But it's kind of an afterthought for a lot of audiophiles, but the reality is it's a little more critical than most people give it give it um, credit for. Mm. The other part of that is that that yeah the cartridges weigh a different amount and so how much they weigh determines the counterweight setting but really i've never had to use anything other than the standard counterweight i've never had to use an auxiliary weight on any cartridge okay then the next step is how much pressure do you put down so that's not from the turntable that's no. from whoever manufactured your cartridge and you right. will see a range and i've never seen mn if it means microdunes i don't know but that's probably um, what it is. Probably well, not Minnesota. Uh, <laughs> but usually it's measured in grams. And I think the old one used to be about one gram or one and a half grams. And I had cartridges from Shure that, if I recall, were like 0.75 to 1.25 grams of downward force. And then you listen to it. And, um, and one thing that I discovered is that the adjustments on the turntables, that little indicator is not really that accurate. It's reasonably accurate. So I went out and got... Like on the counterweight, you mean, on the back? Yeah, you know, it's just, yeah. it's pretty accurate, but it's not that accurate. So the real way is they make scales. They make a little digital scale, or they make even just a little teeter-totter scale. Mm -hmm. And you can absolutely zone in exactly what 1.5 grams is, or 1.2 grams, okay. with those little so, scales. So there's a few things. I think the one thing that we haven't discussed is placement, which is turntables, because they're resonant objects. They pick up vibration they pick up resonance from the room if you have a speaker too close it will vibrate the turntable which mm. then you hear through the cartridge so you know a lot of audiophiles will have um, something really solid some people use a piece of marble some i know somebody that actually combined his astronomy love and built a pier that didn't connect to the house actually cut a hole in the floor built a weighted pier <laughs> Wow. So that nothing touched it when you walked around. So I think, you know, I think that it's important just to not, you know, like in my house, I live in an older, you know, Cape Cod, you know, New England style house and it's sprung floors. There is a metal I-beam in the center of the house. And if I want to have a turntable, as long as I'm on that I-beam, it's solid as a rock. But the minute I move off, it starts to pick up resonance from the floors themselves and from my walking around and, hmm. and base. So, so yeah. Does that mean, well, I'm, that's really interesting. I didn't think about that, but there's probably got to be some good DIY solutions that you can decouple the turntable from the, the audio. I, I never thought about that, but it, you know, you've mentioned a little chunk of marble, but I imagine if you little did a little chunk of marble with some, I don't know, some sort of tripod of soft feet, then that would be better than otherwise, right? Like if you had a foam, some sort of decoupling situation? Well, see, that gets... I don't get it. I kind of don't get why. Well, that's, that's, a different kind of, that's a different kind of issue because if the turntable has a certain amount of isolation, it's got to be dampened, right? Like think about your car. When you have a shock absorber in a car it has a fine line. It's got to dampen vibrations and you want it to dampen small vibrations. So as you're going down a road, little tiny ripples in the pavement don't knock your teeth out. At the same time, it's also got to dampen like when you hit a pothole and that's where you get dynamic suspensions and things like that from. Yeah. But then in between that, it's supposed to be 
kind of invisible. And so it's the same thing here. You need something that dampens vibrations. I mean, there are people who can show you that using a dust cover can make your music sound worse or better. And I would love it if our listeners, you know, weighed in on this on the Facebook page mm, and said, really? hey, you know, have you noticed a difference between using a, a dust cover or not? And I, I had friends that swore, don't use a dust cover. I had other friends that swore, use a dust cover. And I even had one friend who used a dust cover and put a little bean bag on top of the dust cover to keep it from vibrating. So, um, huh. so I do think placement of where it is physically, and also it's gotta be perfectly level. So the other thing is all of those measurements don't count at all if it's not level in all axes. So just take a carpenter's level, stick it on the turntable, adjust those feet till it's perfectly level in both directions. Because mm. then all the other, you know, physics start to come into whack and they all, at least you've got a, a calibration. By the way, the, the, the term for getting that tone arm perfectly level is really null. You're nulling it. Okay. You're, creating a, you're creating it in a consistent state of neutrality. So then when you dial in 1.5 grams, it's really 1.5 grams. Hmm. That's really neat. Um, so this one, this, this Essential 3 by Project, is their entry level. It's 300 bucks. And they go up and up and up and up. And, and they are actually known for a lot of real bang for the buck as well. I know you can spend like a grand on one and get a really beautiful turntable or record player. And there's also a company called Rega that makes a really nice uh, set of record players. I'm curious if I wanted to take this $300, you know, turntable. And I know this is the beginning. So I know that if I go up maybe a few hundred dollars, I probably have a big sonic jump, although I don't, I, I don't know why. So what would be the reason why something would sound better that was, you know, let's say an $800 or $1,000 turntable? Is it a better cartridge or needle or like what's the, what makes some turntables more expensive than others, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, you know, when I, when I think about that, first of all, I don't think you'll hear an astounding difference. I, I, I get a little kind of annoyed when people describe really subtle differences as, you know, night and day, it, dude. Yeah. Night like I, I put these Dixie yeah. cups under my speaker cables and I had an astounding difference. It's not right. astounding. Like, no, it's, it's the not. wrong language. It's hyperbole. It's, it's right. a subtle difference. And, right. and I think it's the same thing you've heard with different headphones or different earphones that anything decent is going to sound pretty, pretty good. I mean, nowadays, anything even reasonably decent yeah. is amazing and um and then then you go up in very small you know decreasing orders of magnitude in terms of the subtlety and the air in the room um turntables but the, but there's a there's a bang for the buck part like at least when you're talking about speakers like 250 to 500 you can get a pretty big leap 500 to a thousand you can get or 1500 you get a pretty big leap yeah but after 1500 yeah it starts to slow down then you got to get to five and then you probably gotta get to about 20 something but you know but yeah. don't forget there's psychoacoustics there's also the idea that if you spent all this money you damn well better hear something better <laughs> so right. i don't right. totally right. trust all of those things but i mean yeah. when you walk in and you hear pure wilson's hooked up to 50 grand worth of amps i mean it's a pretty incredible experience yeah so the turntable of course can't be the weak link so what do you pay for well as the price goes up you have better materials and part of that has to do with resonance you have a better drive system, which is critical, so that the speed is more consistent. You also have less drive noise. So a lot of times when you judge a turntable, you, you judge it in terms of how much noise it contributes, mechanical noise. Mm. Then, um, assuming that you've got a turntable with a good mechanical system that's very quiet and very consistent, then you get to the turntable, then you get to the tone arm. And the tone arms, they're all over the place. I mean, they go from a, like a hundred bucks or even cheaper to, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. So the tone arm and the quality of the tone arm, the materials of the tone arm, they start to really influence audio too, because remember that that tone arm is a material that resonates. And so if the tone arm has resonance, it passes it on to the cartridge. Because remember, the cartridge is analog. It is, it is all about vibrations. Mm. Everything in a turntable boils down to vibration. So the music does, the noise does, corruption does, artifacts does. So any 
change in getting rid of those vibrations, that spurious noise. The same thing happens in digital photography as well, by the way. That's why a larger sensor is better. It's not that it's more resolution, it has less spurious noise. So, so what happens here is that you start to pay for more. Then the next step up is the cartridge itself. And if you notice, really high-end turntables do not come with the cartridge because right. people are Too very picky. But you know, the thing is, a lot of the cartridges, what's interesting is you can just swap out the stylus. Like you don't have to necessarily buy a whole new cartridge. You can just right. get a better quality stylus because the rest of the structure of the cartridge is the same. Some are then, literally diamonds, by the way. Most of them are diamonds, and I have a yeah. DynaVector Ruby, which is actually, it's an old 20-year-old cartridge, but it still works great. And it's actually, the cantilever is actually solid Ruby, and then the diamond is bonded to that. And once again, ah, right. That. That's well, great it, and it, awesome. It, it's totally crazy, and it's gorgeous to look at in the right light, by the way, with a little microscope. But the reason for that is that the, the Ruby crystal is really, really rigid. And as such, it passes on, the theory is, it passes on even more subtle vibrations. So it all boils down to vibrations. And then you get into the choice of cartridge, moving coil or moving magnet. Okay. And a moving coil uses a little coil of wire that vibrates with a fixed magnet in the cartridge. A moving magnet has a little yoke, like a Y, with two magnets that vibrate with the coils in the cartridge. Well moving magnets generate a lot more electricity so therefore they're easier to amplify at the preamp stage moving coils generate very low levels therefore it's very difficult to make a good moving coil preamp because there's so much noise huh you know, because you know remember if you have a very low voltage to amplify it it's a challenge and it's a challenge to amplify it enough without adding any digital any electronic noise to it so um, so so then, let's say all things being equal, you got a really nice system and you got a moving coil cartridge, then the quality of your preamp becomes paramount. I mean, that preamp could be make it or break it because mm. if that preamp has color, you know, in an upcoming session, I'd love to have um, the guys at Channel D on because what, what he's created um, is a system that uses your computer to do all the preamplification curves, the RAAA curves, and also click reduction. But, um, but for the most part, so the, this whole system, by the way, is full of a million variables, and you don't have that in a digital system. You know, I mean, if you have a DAC, you know, there's a handful of DACs out there. There's good ones, there's cheap ones, there's great ones. But they're they're critical, but not as critical as what yeah. goes into um, a, a legacy, a, you know, analog system. Do you think, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you think, I was just, as you were talking, I was looking at this article about the best, the eight best turntable cartridges to achieve the ultimate sound quality. And they literally go from $25 for a Rega Carbon to, uh, well, these are pounds actually, 25 pounds for Rega Carbon to 1,000 pounds for the um, Mia Jima Zero. And um, and everything in between, and this this contends though that the choice of cartridge is just as important as the amp loudspeakers and the deck itself. So um, it seems like a big deal, but it looks like you can you can buy a nice cartridge that will probably last you and give you. You know, I always think about the eighty twenty rule when I think about audio stuff. Like, am I getting eighty percent of the way there for less than five hundred bucks? Uh. You know. I'd, that, say, I'd say 70 maybe, and I'm sure there's some listeners that would probably say 50, but... Um, for what? You know, for spending a few hundred bucks, but... You, you I, get 50% of the way there for a few hundred bucks? I actually think you're probably closer to 70, especially okay. nowadays, because a current $300 turntable is a really good piece of equipment, much better than your parents' Gerard turntable that you might have grown up with. So even okay. an inexpensive turntable like the Project turntables... They sound really good, and the yeah. cartridges are manufactured to really high standards, so they sound good even at, a, at, at the very beginning. Right. They're just kind of bang for the buck. But for you, the 80% rule starts where? Like, you have to get into the couple thousand dollar range or something? 
you know, I don't know. And I don't feel qualified to really talk about that because okay. my, you know, I love vinyl, but I like vinyl in the same way that I love film. I know on a technical level that what I can do with a high-end digital camera or digital back is superior technically in almost every single way to film. I mean, I can show you the curves, I can show you noise, I can show you resolution. I can go through this entire analysis of it. But in the end, there's something incredibly beautiful about film. And uh, a friend of mine right. is one of the pioneers of digital photography. His name is Steven Johnson. And he says, that's the problem. You're just in love with everything film does wrong. <laughs> you know, mm. you love the distortions, you love the blocked highlights, you love the grain. So when you get to digital, and if you use it really carefully, it's very linear. You know, you don't have a Kodachrome gold in, you know, the warmth of a Kodachrome in digital, right? right? Unless you dot, you put it in. It's linear. And so I think when you start playing albums, you're falling in love with the distortions and you're falling in love with the limits. And in some yeah. cases, where it gets really muddy, Michael, is when you're in that record bin at the Salvation Army, which is how we started this, Older recordings are mastered from analog sources to analog, you know, record lathes, right? Right. Modern recordings are remastered digitally, and then it's going from digital back to analog. Mm. That's kind of weird. Yeah. And, and some people... Losing, you're losing a lot. Well, but some people love the, the distortion and the sound of vinyl. It has a different warmth, a different kind of air. Yeah. You know, maybe it loses some of the sterility of digital, but it's not about accuracy, I, I don't think. But I think when you're in that record bin and you're looking at a 1960s pressing, and it's amazing how many of those old jazz recordings are coming out, or you get for a quarter. Um, and by the way, you know, when you look at that album, look at it for scratches, you know. Um, those things sound pretty amazing. There's real beauty and warmth to them, and you're not going to get that a lot of times from digital sources. Right. Okay. Well, it's really exciting. I, I'm. It's cool to... Uh, by the way, it's a great uh, conversation piece in your house, too, because people aren't used to seeing a, a turntable. Um, but if you guys want to check out this, this and others, um, it is Project Turntables. And it's, uh, I, I kept saying project, maybe that's not right, but it's um, project-audio.com, project-audio.com. And they have turntables that are completely like, you know, this one, which is the, I think maybe it's the, the debut line that I'm in, all the way up to the, you know, really, really fancy, fancy stuff that is quite expensive and, and really cool. They have a signature line that... It looks like it should be in a spaceship or something. It's crazy. Um, and they really do. The higher end you get with these turntables, the more beautiful industrial design uh, is there. But this one right here called the uh, Project Signature 12 is, is $10,000 or 10,000 pounds. So 10,000 euros. So your, your mileage may vary. Um, anyway. I was, and uh, and, uh, and, I gotta, and, ahead, and by the way, there's a whole new generation of turntables, which we haven't talked about which are turntables with a built-in USB output. Oh, I know. My brother has you one know? of those. So Audio-Technica has it. Um, yeah, that's what he has. You know, a, another source for fantastic low-cost turntables is Music Hall, which is led by this irascible Scotsman named Roy Hall. And uh, he's famous because if you go to CES, he's always got fine, fine scotch for people who walk in the door. Mm. So, yes, oh, yeah. so it's always a crowded suite. And... Uh, and and Roy's turntables start also at a few hundred bucks all the yeah, way up to this flagship. So, so they're great turntables as well. And um, and they have a whole variety for the person who wants to digitize their favorite vinyl all the way through somebody that really wants to do it. Um, mm. I do want to say one other thing, Michael, which is if there's a listener out there that wants to do analog and really, you know, you don't want to spend a lot of money. You just want to try it. If you go to the Salvation Armies of the world, if you go to thrift stores, a lot of people are tossing their old stereo receivers. Now, yeah. why does this matter? Because current home theater systems, most of the time, do not have an audio, a phonograph or turntable input. Right. So they don't have even a circuit to decode and apply the RIAA curve so you can listen to a turntable. But I have seen stacks of Sony and Denons and Onkyos and Rotels at Salvation Armies for 25 bucks 
yeah. that are 20 years old, but they all have a turntable input. So yeah. that's a great way to do this on the cheap and have some fun. I never thought about that. That's a great idea. By the way, musichallaudio.com is where you guys can check out um, those turntables as well. And they all look great, too. They're doing a lot of really cool stuff with industrial design. And you and I saw that one at um, the L.A. show with the, the hovering electromagnetic platter where it like, literally wasn't touching anything. It was just floating, uh, which was really cool. I, yeah. I need that in my life. It's very Star Wars. <laughs> it was. Um, I got a call or an email, rather, from a dude the other day, and they might come on as an advertiser, but you and I are going to try their service. And this is just a little sidebar, but they have, it's a company called Murphy, which is M-U-R-F-I-E. And it's really cool. You literally send them your CD collection, or if you have gazillions, you maybe let's say send them your top 150 or 200 CDs and or some vinyl. And they will, uh, they will digitize it for you, and then they have the ability to stream it. You have the ability to stream it to yourself from anywhere. So you log into their service, and they give you access to your, excuse me, your entire library that you can stream, which I think is so cool. Um, so they, so it's for ninety nine bucks a year. They can have their entire, you can have your entire collection digitized and stored on their, in their cloud, as well as safe climate controlled physical storage of the actual product in the warehouse. Once digitized, subscribers get lossless streaming in uh, 1411 FLAC using our web player or on compatible devices like Sonos, Blue Sound, or uh, Autonomic, although there's also an option to stream in uh, 320 kbps MP3 if you choose. So there's an iOS and an Android app that you can stream from, and and then you can sort of buy and sell albums that are already digitized that are other people's. So if I digitize mine and say, all right, I've digitized it, and I want to sell it for three bucks, um, you can you get it, and then once a month you can pick whatever album you want from their library of over forty thousand titles, and and then you can add that to your your uh, your you know, streaming service. So I'm going to try it. We're, we're both getting, they, they're giving us a little thing to try out. So I'll probably send all my CDs their way. I don't have any albums to send, but uh, we'll keep you posted on it because I think it sounds like a really cool idea. Yeah, I think that does sound pretty neat. Um, I'll be curious to see what your results are. Well, you get to do the same thing. So I'll be curious to see what your results are as well. You'll have to, I know you have way more albums than I do. So you'll have to pick, they do, um, they do vinyl as well, by the by. And um, I don't know if they do cassettes, but they definitely do albums. So, so, you know, back to your discussion, what are they using to digitize your vinyl? You know, how, how high end is that equipment? How carefully, you know, do they do it? What kind of preamp and what the DAC is? Because remember, now you're into a different world. You're taking it from analog back into digital. So that entire chain, depending, is highly variable on the quality. I mean, extraordinarily right. variable. And that's where that $200, you know, turntable with a built-in DAC and, you know, that plugs into your computer, you know, if, if you're thinking like that's okay, then that's one level. If you're thinking that you need to spend 5,000 bucks to get from turntable to, to DAC to computer, that's a whole nother level of reproduction. So um, right. I will be curious to see when you A, B, the album versus the digital version of it. Yeah, when he talked about that specifically, he was pretty proud of the gear. I don't remember what it was off the top of my head, but he was pretty like, oh yeah, we've got this, 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 this. So my sense, they've been going for six years. So my sense is they have a pretty good setup. Um, but who knows, you know? You, again, your ears are probably more discerning than mine. Um, so do you want to do a couple of questions now and then picks of the week, or do you want to do picks of the week and then a couple of questions? I'll follow your lead, Master. Let's do a couple of questions and then picks of the week, and then we'll roll out of here. So um, Robert Bingham, and I did respond to him on this, but I want I, I think this is a um, this is an important uh, thing to like question to discern one way or the other. So he says, "Hey Michael, I'm looking at getting a Marantz SR611 or an Anthem MX520. I wanted to know what made you switch from Marantz to Anthem, and what made you and what do you use to play music." Um, so I think, well, so I think he was a little confused. First of all, I, I didn't, I was testing the Anthem. So I had, they sent me the MRX 1120, which was their, you know, high end, uh, Dolby Atmos home theater setup. 
And it sounded great from an audio standpoint. But what I said to him is it depends on how much of a lifestyle system you want. And the thing is with Marantz and Denon and I haven't experienced, well, I've experienced little Sony's. It wasn't awesome. Um, I've heard Pioneers is pretty good. I don't, I don't know which, uh, what, what home theater uh, receiver do you have, Harris? Fogel. Harris Fogel. Did I lose you? Did that just happen? Um, okay, well, I'll answer it myself then. So the thing I liked about the Marantz was that it's it's pretty modernized. So you plug it in, you throw an Ethernet cable in it, it just worked. It was fine. Um, you could connect with AirPlay. You could connect with Bluetooth. It, was, it felt very modern. It had Internet streaming. It had... Um, you know, obviously Atmos, really easy interface to use. Like on my system, I'm using one single surround back instead of two surround backs, but I'm able to toggle that in the setup. Whereas the Anthem really stripped down from an interface standpoint. So it's not something they've spent as much time on. Um, it's a smaller company. They're, they're focusing on a little more of a bespoke experience, so they've got better amplifiers, better quality of components in the gear. The question is, can you hear the difference between one or the other? I, I mean, I had a pretty, I got a pretty decent $2,000 Marantz um, setup. Oh, and the other thing is, is that Marantz is using um, the XT30 Odyssey XT32 uh, EQ system, whereas the Anthem is using their Arc. And if you're a Mac user as I am, the Arc is only running from your phone, and it's not as good as it would be if you were running it from a PC laptop. So it wasn't quite as—I don't know that I was able to go one-to-one, but I will say just overall, from a, a lifestyle standpoint, it felt to me like the, the Marantz was easier just to implement and use. So for a beginner, that might— that might make a difference. The Anthem felt like a, a higher-end piece of gear that was a little finickier and had a, um, you know, it, it felt like you needed to know what you were doing a little bit more to be able to really take advantage of what that thing would do. So um, that was sort of my take on that. Um, did, did I get you back, Harris? Did, have you gone away? No, I'm here. Okay, there you are. Okay, I tried to bring you in before, but... Um, yeah, there was no response. So I, I had a mute because my phone started ringing. Oh, that's a problem. Are you on your phone now? Is that you calling from your phone? Is that what you're no, doing? No, no, no. I'm on the computer, okay. but no, got it. It or not, we have a landline. Have you heard of those? They go Holy along with turntables. You can't just, uh, yeah, that's one thing you can't just mute. Um, anyway, so that was the choice is that I had kind of one lifestyle set up and then the other one was a little more complicated. It's almost like a, a, a passenger car versus a race car. The race car is going to go faster, but it also requires an engineer to run it a little bit. And that's where I landed on it. What's your, um, so what I was asking you is what is your, what's your home theater? And do you have any experience with their, uh, like what's your receiver? And do you have any experience with their, their overall setup? You know what I mean? Like how they, how they integrate? Yeah. yeah I, I have a pioneer and I think it's okay. an SC 71 and it's a, class D amplifier and a friend of mine, Chris Walker, um, was the one who really sat down and talked about the use of class D amplification. Now, of course, you know, Chris and Andrew Jones are the forces behind ELAC. Oh, okay. So, cool. so he was really an advocate and he felt that class D was getting a ton of grief that it didn't deserve. Right. And what about so, like the lifestyle interface part? Like being able well, to it's, just it's actually pretty plug difficult. It in, get, yeah, get connected, all that stuff. It, you know, I have to say it's pretty difficult. When I first got it, trying to figure it out was next to impossible. And I had to keep emailing Chris and say, "Hey, how do I get the sub to work? Or how do I get this to work? Or how do I get that to work?" Because, you know, like the instruction manuals, as you know, a lot of manuals they just tell you that if you push this button, it does this. It doesn't tell you when you should push the button. It doesn't hey, tell you why, <laughs> why you should push the button. button. And so for instance, I had to go into a buried setting to basically say, you know, please send out subwoofer information. And then mm. I suddenly got the sub to work, you know, with music and not just home theater. So, right. um, so that, right, right. yeah, there's, it, it definitely left a lot to be 
uh, desired. It's also one of the first of the, not it, but in the, in a couple of years ago, you started to see the first, you know, you know, home theater systems or AVRs set up to be used with a tablet or your phone. And so the, the actual, the actual way that you hooked up the system and you configured it was designed to be used with a tablet because if you used it on your on your television, it was really painful. I mean, it was like just painful. You're using this remote, you're trying to navigate. So they had a dedicated app and they had a dedicated app for the Mac and they had a dedicated app for the Windows system. So you could, through a web interface or through your phone or tablet, you know, an Android too, you could then control it. The, the confusing part of that, from my point of view, is that when I went online, and if anybody wants to try this, just take your like Android phone and type in Pioneer, you'll see like a dozen Pioneer apps. Mm -hmm. And the only way to figure out which one you should be using is to go into the developer notes on the app, and then you'll see a list of all the receivers. And then you'll notice that some of the apps list your receiver, like m many of them. And you go, okay, now which one do I use? Then what you have to do is figure out what's the most currently updated one, so you have the most recent version. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think that the GUIs... It's like that, that with most of them, by the way. They're, they're mostly bad. I think industry-wide, they're not... That thing you just said, of you don't know which app to use. Because I think Marantz has about nine different apps as well. I don't know why they do that and don't just have a universal that works with everything, but I'm sure they have technical reasons for it. Well, you know, once you get them working, and by the way, I have to say that Pioneer has been very good and they, um, they updated their app and the new version of it is quite, quite amazing. I mean, it's got this 3D um, kind of representation of how your sound is. It, it allows you to do all your room calibration. So it's very sophisticated. You can easily rename inputs to your own equipment. So it's taken three years, but I think now they've got an app that really kind of is at the level of the equipment. And then I'm currently running, I think I mentioned before, some Wharfdales diamonds, and, um, and they're very clean. And I've also run the Pioneer speakers that Andrew Jones designed. And I'm looking forward to working with the Elacs to see how they sound. But yeah, me um, too. But yeah, it, the setup, yeah, setup is cranky. I mean, I, you yeah. know, if, All like the way I, around. I felt like as much experience as I had that I had to call tech support <laughs> to do something. Yeah, that's not a good sign. And the other right. thing I wanted to mention is, so my son Thomas is on a radio station for his university, and they have, you know, they broadcast it on the internet, right? Well, the Pioneer, like everybody else, has internet radio built in. But actually finding the station, it required me to contact the station, get their actual URL, not the public URL, but their their the kind of the the kind of internal URL for the broadcast, then I had to send that to Pioneer and they have a service that adds it into their their database. And it worked for a year and then it stopped working. And I haven't mm -hmm. yet to get anybody at Pioneer to answer and say, hey, this is what's wrong. So that the internet radio thing kind of worked, but it only worked well with stuff it already had and most of which I didn't want to listen to. Right. And even, I mean, even with my Marantz, and we have to move on to the next thing, but I have to roll in a minute. Um, the, the interface is, you can tell it was designed by engineers and not UI designers. So I, you know, I, I just had a chance to use the Amazon Fire Stick the other day. And I was like, wow, what a nice interface this thing is. And, and like a Roku. Then I go back to the interface on my Marantz and I go, oh, man, this is, this feels like it's from 1995. So it probably was, by the way, they just updated it since. Um, pick of the week. So I, I don't know why I decided to look, or maybe it came up on title as a recommendation, but Benny Greb, G-R-E-B, Benny, B-E-N-N-Y, G-R-E-B. The album I first listened to was called Greb Fruit 2, G-R-E-B Fruit 2. Um, he's a drummer, so you're going to get a lot of drum-oriented stuff. And then I listened to Moving Parts Live. They were awesome. They were so good. And so Grebfruit is so well-produced that it sounded spectacular. And it felt like I was sitting there, and his, his drum set was three feet away from me as he was playing it. It was really, really fantastic. So that is my pick of the week on uh, Tidal. Um, what do you got? What do you got for us? Let's see. My pick of the week is... 
an old title that was reissued a few years back, and it's called Famous Blue Raincoat. It's Jennifer Warren's singing the songs of Leonard Cohen. Okay. It's got everybody from Stevie Ray Vaughan on down, and I think it's an amazing, amazing album. And then she does a duet with Leonard Cohen on one of the tracks. And so um, I'd love to see it in high res, but the reissue of it and the remastering of it a few years back is pretty fantastic. So that's one of those things where audio-wise it's great, but musically it's just, just, a, just an amazing piece of work. All right, it's on title. I just found it. Um, yeah, it looks like it's got everything all digitally remastered, ready to go. Um, cool. That sounds good. Good, good enough for me. Um, folks, that is this episode of Beginner Audio File. Hope you enjoyed your uh, your ride here, and uh, please exit to the left. No, um, Harris, sir, have you gotten an Instagram yet? Photographer. You know, I know. I'm going to keep hassling you every time I you know. do a show. I just feel like I get so many emails and texts as it is that any more information and, you know, I'm just going to go hide in a cave with a couple of tin cans. You're a photographer, for crying out loud. Yeah, I know. Jeez. All right. Well, find us on Instagram at Beginner Audio File, and you can also email us at beginneraudiofile at gmail.com. And uh, we've got a group. We've got a Facebook group, the Beginner Audio File community. And we've got a Facebook page. So you got four different places you can visit us. And uh, we would love to hear from you. Um, Harris, what's uh, what's in for you this next week or so? Well, it's the start of a new semester. And so right. college life begins for me. Um, and so I have to gear up for that, or I'm actually geared up for it. All right. So that's my week. And, um, you know, right. and I'll just say I'm excited about a new semester. Well, I will hopefully have a chance to fully review this uh, turntable, Sonus Faber project turntable setup from those guys and uh, get back to you guys with, with the results. But until next time, keep listening to good music for Harris Vogel, Michael O'Neill. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Beginner Audiophile. For gear giveaways and answers to your questions, join our mailing list at beginneraudiophile.com. Tag pictures of your audio setup to at Beginner Audiophile on Instagram. Until next time, keep experiencing great music. Thank you.